Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. This episode, I have something special for you. Our first mayoral candidate interview of the 2024 a local city of Portland elections. This interview and Q&A session happened last night at Bike Happy Hour. Bike Happy Hour is an event that we started almost a year ago now. It happens every Wednesday from 3 to 6 p.m. over at uh, on Southeast Ankeny's Rainbow Road. That's between 27th and 28th. So when I heard that Keith Wilson was running for mayor, uh, Keith is somebody who I've used as a source for stories over the years and actually met him for the first time when he ran for city council in 2020 and have been in touch with him off and on over various stories since. And when I heard he was running for mayor, I was really interested in having him come to happy hour and do his stump speech, which is something we've done with 12 other council candidates at this point, but we haven't done it with a mayoral candidate. So Keith was nice enough to say yes, and he showed up last night. What you're gonna hear is uh, Keith's stump speech. I just gave him the mic and allowed him to introduce himself. And then after that, I interviewed Keith, uh, asked him a few questions. And then we also took a few questions from the audience. We talked about an interesting range of topics. Most of Keith's stump speech revolved more around his work on uh, helping Portland with non-transportation related things, including his efforts to get more people into shelters. A lot of people don't know about Keith's experience with Shelter Portland, this nonprofit that he founded and has put together to get folks off the streets. He's also the CEO and founder of Titan Freight Systems, which is a freight trucking company that operates about 45 trucks in three states. So that's definitely an interesting perspective he brings as a business owner and someone in the transportation space. So I was able to ask him a question about that. He's got a wide range of experience, which I will let him share in his introduction of himself. Uh, but I also want to say that in addition to talking about homelessness here, and actually most of the audience questions were about that, including one that I asked Keith myself, uh, none of the audience questions were actually about transportation. But when I interviewed Keith, I did ask him several questions about transportation, including his work on high-speed rail, which I think you'll find very interesting. He's one of the top high-speed rail advocates in the entire nation and is committed to bringing a line to Oregon as soon as possible. And he's also been to Amsterdam. So I asked him about his takeaways with how they prioritize bicycling there. I think you're gonna enjoy learning more about Keith Wilson. I think he's a really intriguing candidate that is gonna gain a lot more traction than a lot of the local pundits and even just local Portlanders uh, expect once they get to know about him a little bit more. He's a wide range of experience that I think is very applicable and relevant to Portland right now. So here is Keith Wilson speaking at Bike Happy Hour on February 14th. It happened to be Valentine's Day. My name is Keith Wilson. I'm running for mayor and it's really focused on real change. The key item you're going to hear me talk about this next nine months is that change is going to be ending unsheltered homelessness in Portland in the first 12 months of my administration. I'm going to be very clear about that and I'm going to make that promise to you, but then I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it because just saying you're going to do something isn't really fair to us. It's how are we going to do it and deliver it? So let's talk about just me personally for a little while. I grew up in Portland, North Portland, educated here, went to school here, built a business here, married my wife and raised my children here. But it goes back further than that. My mother and the, my father really struggled. Neither of them knew their fathers. Um, my dad was a foster care. Uh, mom had disabilities, never knew her dad at all. They each went through a series of fathers as well. 
struggled mightily with all sorts of family strife and trauma, but they found each other one day at, Rose, at the uh, St. John's Theater. Dad walked in, he fell in love, and he wouldn't let her go. He went off to the army. Uh, our family's known trauma. My, uh, my oldest brother, Richard, was born with Down syndrome, so I was really introduced to disability at a young age, and Richard turned out to be just the North Star of our family, which was wonderful. Through that process, mom was an Avon lady, poor, impoverished, lived a block away from the Columbia Villa, the, the, the largest housing projects. Our house was Grand Central. Dad was a truck driver. We had a bunch of family. Everybody was always over, and it was great because at an eight-year-old, we'd get the Avon boxes of perfume and all that, and all of us would all have to break out the boxes and put all the little uh, perfume and lipsticks into bags. And as an eight-year-old, I tell you, I was the best-smelling eight-year-old of anybody <laughs> on the block. But we went from there. I'd always had a desire and a dream to get a college education. Nobody in my family had. I put myself through college. It was extremely difficult. You know, I didn't do well at Roosevelt. Didn't have anybody really asking me to perform, right? I was always kind of on my own. But I went to PCC, and I found my love. I worked my tail off. They were always teachers. They were local neighbors, 30-person classrooms, and I just flourished there. Two years, went to Oregon State, spent three years there because working through college. Graduated, and after I graduated, I said, I'm gone. And I went off to New York City, and my father said to me, he said, what are you doing? You shouldn't do that. Really reluctant for change, right? I mean, foster care kid, truck driver, then he's delivering luggage from the Portland airport. That was his sort of lockdown with family. I just, you know, gave everything I had away, and I ended up in Manhattan, and I thought, I'm going to start my career there. I did an internship at NBC, didn't turn it into a job, but I said, this is where I'm going to just begin my career. Ran out of money living at LaGuardia Airport, because I thought to myself, if you're homeless, where do you go? You go to the place at least with carpet, because Newark Airport had tile. That was my decision-making process. But you know what? I was just down on my luck. I really wasn't homeless. I was just trying to find my way, couch surfing and so on. But then I ended up landing a job at NBC. And I was working in primetime sales with only eight sales reps, selling all the commercials and the programs that we all learned and we loved at the time. And then, still wanting to travel, I just sold everything and I just said, I'm heading off to Europe. I had uh, communicated with some CEOs in Australia and New Zealand who were now buying our product. Said, I want to come down and help you sell commercial times because it was like a BBC going to private and they needed help. So I told them, but I'll be there in six months. Six months later, I find myself in Africa or Nepal where democracy was taking over the world. I was on the Berlin Wall when the wall fell, chipping away with 12 people. I rented a bus and took them there. It was such an amazing time in the late 80s and 90s. So I sent them a letter and said, I'll be there in a year. Well, I finally get there, long hair, living in New Zealand, enjoyed the world. And I thought, I'm not ready to really create my roots here. I want to go back to Portland. This has always been my North Star. And then I traveled for another year, uh, working northern and, heaven, uh, northern and southern hemisphere skiing. So that's the fun part of it. All right. I end up in Portland. My absolute love drew me back here. And I have experience traveling and living in 30 different cities around the world. And I will tell all of you right now that this is the best city in the world, bar none, without a question. And you all know that. So now let's talk about 
the second chapter and where are we at right now? The point is, is right now, six, seven years ago, I started looking around and I don't recognize my city anymore. I've been building this business up, focusing on excellence and quality and safety and sustainability to where we are the lowest carbon footprint carrier in the nation, a fleet of electric trucks. I don't use any fossil fuels in Oregon. All these accomplishments have led me to the point where our company is innovator of the year nationally, two years in a row. All that sounds fine and good, but if I'm operating in the backdrop of a community that's failing, where my neighbors can't live, where it's harmful or livability is compromised, we've got a problem. And then I started hearing this thing about compassion fatigue. We've got compassion fatigue. And I thought to myself, what is that? It's where you start getting walled in. You don't have an outlet. It's essentially where we don't care anymore. And I say that that, that is absolutely wrong. So I take 12 young black youth camping every summer. Half are gang-related uh, kids, half are college-bound. We want to merge them together. And then we have police officers work with them because we want to break down that barrier about what systemic racism is, right? So I'm around the campfire in August, and Alex is telling me his mantra. Mantra is we always have these kids tell us, what's your dream? Because we want them to dream big when you're 17, which you should be doing. And he stops and he says, I just want to live to be 21. It drops you to your worst part of humanity when you're trying to help a kid out. And he says that. I'm like, Alex, why is that? My mother's homeless. My cousins and my brothers are all dead. Why would I be any different? And I explain to all of you, if that's the hope we're giving to our youth, we've lost our bearings. We're rudderless. And then there's Elizabeth across the street. She's 30 years old. I've watched her grow up. Beautiful young lady. She's living in a tent two blocks away from the Greyhound bus station shelter, addicted to fentanyl with nowhere else to go. Her tent is swept, and the county city is right there to give her another tent. She also keeps a bed at the shelter because if she's hungry or wants a shower, she can go there. And I'm thinking to myself from a humanity standpoint, when our city county distributes tents instead of shelters, when we allow somebody to live in a tent and be in raptured with their addiction but not helping them we've lost our way and then last january i'm out on a point in time multnomah county homeless count and i run into a high school classmate and i'm taking their data their census and i'm thinking to myself what are we doing that's only three stories in the last few months that's not why i ran six years ago was a point in time where i said we've got to do better i'm just telling you those are the stories we all have and those are just three local stories. So I'll tell you, it's not compassion fatigue, it's helplessness fatigue. It's you all want to help, but you don't know what to do. So what's, what's our next method? What should we be doing for our community? So my uh, focus, well, let me explain to you. Do you know there's an antidote to helplessness? It's, it's called action. It's, there's a superpower. You got to act. I'll go back to that six years ago. So I started jumping into the problem. What's causing this, the why. And I started traveling around the United States. I'm fortunate because of my business to go to multiple communities. I started calling mayors, federal government officials, county commissioners, and I only would really stop at areas that were best of the best, ones that had ended in sheltered homelessness. What are you doing that we're not? 
right? Go to Bob's, best of the best. Don't go to Wow's, worst of the worst. Always go to Bob's, right? Or you'll never be better than others. And then they've uh, really joined my expert team. I have 10 people on my leadership council now that are experts at ending unsheltered homelessness because I'm a transportation executive, you know? I'm not the one who's going to make these changes, but I'm going to surround myself with experts who are going to help me. I'm an implementation expert. I'm a systems data analyst. I know how to take an input, process it, and gain an, an output. It's basic to me. Those are the things that are basic. So now we're talking about learning. So then, with learning from these experts, I started testing it myself. You know, we're going to talk about PEDS, and we're going to talk about bikes, and we're going to talk about transit. Who is hurting more in our community than anybody other than the bike numbers falling? Transit. I called Doug Kelsey, the general manager at the time of TriMet, and I said, I want to borrow one of your parking garages. And they're like, what? I said, I want to set up a shelter in a parking garage. You bet that was crazy. They thought it was crazy. But you know what? Their numbers have been falling, and they said, take the Gateway Center. And they let me borrow the parking garage because I said to them, if we can shelter cars better than people, what sort of humanity are we? Right? And so I tested it October 12th, uh, like three years ago. And I put it on Facebook and I said, it works. It was World Homeless Day. And then I started working with George Debendorf, the executive director at Transition Projects, our largest homeless shelter, and Mark Jolin, who was our executive director of Joint Office of Homeless Services. I said, this gentleman, this works. Let's try it. And they did. And they tried it on a severe winter shelter night. Three years ago, 20 degree evening, 20 degrees. Oh my gosh, I almost killed the eight volunteers that were in there. It didn't work. Remember I told you, try, fail fast, improve, try again. And so I moved inside and I started talking to individuals with churches and community centers. Can I borrow your church? Like, sure. We moved the pews away. We set up a shelter of two. I had one uh, friend of mine who's uh, homeless. And I said, come with me because I want your perspective, right? I don't want to ever make a decision for a homeless person. It's their perspective. We set it up. We went World Homeless Day, and it worked. And so we started opening shelters. And so I have a shelter right now at the Church of Nazarene at I-205 in Powell Boulevard. Let me tell you this. I'm sheltering 45 people tonight for $16.36 for $16 per person. A Safe Rest Village tonight is going to cost us as a community $189 per person. I can shelter Portlanders for a tenth of the cost our city is currently doing it because I've asked people to help me with this. In two weeks, I open a day shelter because just sheltering people at night isn't truly going to help a community find their needs, overcome the needs, and then become housed, which is what our goal is. Not to be a sheltering city, to be a caring city. It's to Get to that housing, but I will tell you, we can't be a civil society when we have 4,000 people living on the street tonight and 400 of them are going to die this year, over one a day. What sort of community are we when we allow our neighbors to live and die on the street and we're handing out tents instead of providing the basic need of a shelter? That's all it is, at a low cost, and then we can do this. And I'm telling you, there's so much more I could be talking to you about this and this. But I want to really just focus on this, this second chapter. We can't become the city we want to be. We cannot be that North Star of the nation, which we are. 
We just need to get under that surface again. So my point to you, and I'll finish with this. If my superpower is taking action, that's your superpower too. You have four candidates running for mayor. I want each and every one of you to ask them to articulate what are they going to do first and foremost to end unsheltered homelessness? Because I'm telling you, every problem we're experiencing when it comes to mental illness, addiction that's fueled because of fentanyl, an overwhelmed public safety department that when we call, they aren't going to show up in some cases. That's the reality. I want you to ask them, what are we going to do about unsheltered homelessness? Because we must, we must, if we're going to have dignity in our community, help those souls on the street. And you will be surprised once we do, how it just opens up the livability and the life that our city has once enjoyed and we will enjoy again. So your superpower is your vote. Use it wisely. Act with your vote. Be discernible and make sure you really are getting the answers you need before you cast that vote. And I hope you vote for me. And you got nine months to kind of look under the hood, but I'm not going anywhere. And, and I think Jonathan knows. It doesn't matter the forum or the conversation or the topic. I'll dig in and I'll spend all day and all night. God knows my wife and children know I get in these things. So thank you for this opportunity. It's a great privilege of mine. Thank you. No, I appreciate that, Keith. What, what he was referring to there at the end about how I know is that Back in September, I was in touch with Keith to try to follow up on the one-year anniversary of Sarah Pliner was killed on a Southeast 26th. She was trying to cross uh, at Powell there, and I was trying to follow up on the year later. And I had talked to you before for a story. Folks might have read it because you're, you're a trucking expert. So we talked about, uh, about some of the components of that crash and what might have changed and how to do the trucking there. And I was really impressed that in that phone call, he had a whole presentation, he had a whole proposal, he had a design he'd thought about, about how to fit trucks there and how to reconfigure the lanes and all this kind of stuff. I think at one point I had to say, look man, I, I'm just here to do a story. I'm not, I'm not gonna go testify with you here. This is a little bit different than, but I appreciated your willingness to kind of like go way above and beyond. Uh, Keith was a member of what they called the Powell Boulevard Safety Working Group, which formed after, after Sarah Pliner was killed. Uh, and. I think it's, you know not I don't I really appreciate uh, what what you said in your speech there and it, and I'm always conflicted when I'm I'm basically a reporter in town who only covers one general topic transportation and in the last gosh I think since Ferguson is kind of where I first started you know hearing a lot about more in the news so basically a decade now uh, where it's felt awkward for me to try to be really forward with transportation issues knowing that there are so many other important things that are top of mind for folks especially at city hall from policing issues to homelessness and all these things. I understand that there's a lot of intersections that we can weave and to make transportation a part of those, but I just want to kind of honor what you said in your speech and the work you're doing. People are probably thinking, why is this trucking CEO uh, talking about doing homeless shelters, but you're... Shelter, shelter Portland, so shelter what Portland, I, yeah. I set it up and I've got uh, those, because I needed an umbrella for those experts to really to reside, and then I have five area homeless service providers, uh, executive directors on my board, because I want them to do the work on the numbers and then I'm gonna implement that program. So it, it's working, so it's Shelter Portland. Shelter Portland. So I just wanna honor those issues, but also say that we're gonna be talking about some transportation stuff, so that's kind of my way to try to, try to segue into talking about transportation. Let's go back to Powell a little bit. Um, tell me about how you got involved with that working group and then 
I know you're not super pleased with the outcome of that working group, so explain to me kind of your experience doing that advocacy. Right, so Sarah died, and Senator Taylor called me up and said, hey, you're a transportation person. Would you come and, and sit on this work group? Absolutely, love to. Uh, the last thing I want to be is that person getting a call that my driver killed a bicyclist. That's the worst sort of nightmare I could ever experience owning a business, knowing that you contributed to somebody's fatality. So I take my job very seriously when it comes to safety. And I'm really happy to say we have never, ever killed anybody. And that's something I take pride in because we have done tens of millions of miles. And that's not happenstance or luck. That was very much hard work we put in. So she called and we assembled a, a really great group. David Benning just walked in and he has been one of our strongest advocates. And, uh, and David sat next to me one meeting, and I have never left him alone since then. So, because he's been really helping me as far as the bike perspective. Again, I told you, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big bicyclist, but I don't know the rules of the road. But David does, and he would be my sounding board on the things. But then about four or five months ago, it's like any big organization, they just stopped communicating. But David and I were working on a strategy as well as Oregon walks to some, you know, we were ready to really bring our, our powder, which was dry, and we wanted to show them, here's how we could rework 26th Avenue to make it safer, or at least talk to Peabot and rewrite, because I had been working with the engineers at Peabot, and uh, they said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll listen to you. And then they responded back and said, sorry, your program is good, but it would delay car traffic too much. And I thought, wait a second. David and I had been heard the hierarchy is peds first, bikes second, cars third. Now, that didn't make sense. And so we went out there, and I took three trucks out there, and we showed them that you can't fit three vehicles abreast on this vehicle without running over a bicyclist. So I sent that off to Jonathan only this Monday because I kept waiting for another meeting, and it's just died down. We had the best of intention. I was talking to Hami a moment ago. But then it just stopped, and that's not my mythology. I follow through. I want things done. Where's the dotted I cross the T? So I sent it off to them. And I do want to thank Jonathan. So he called up to talk to me, and then I wouldn't let him get off the phone. And another thing, Jonathan, but we got to do this. We can do better. So uh, I think he finally hung up on me. Is what it <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. But I really appreciated his perspective because we just want to help Portlanders out, right? You know, there's no favoritism. We don't need anything out of this. Well, well, now it's good to know that you know the experience of a lot of the activists in the room who have been feel like they've been sort of worn out or got burnt out by these processes that the city likes to go through. I've unfortunately interacted with a lot of families who've lost people in traffic crashes, and several of them have expressed to me over the years how frustrating it is to, for months after the crash, they're the, the talk, everybody wants to call them, and they the city uses them to speak and wants them to be on advisory committees, but then things fizzle out. Uh, and they get frustrated that nothing actually changes, and so they move on. And it's, it's really hard to hear a mom express their you know misgivings about the process. And I also hear from a lot of activists. So you you kind of have been able to to share some of that with your experience with the Powell Working Group. But uh, to go back to your track record as a I don't he didn't really say much about Titan Freight Systems, but as a person who uh, Kisa, someone who owns a company that runs what 45 trucks 45 trucks three states so you're you're out there moving things i don't know what you exactly put in those but 
everything. Okay. Stuff in the back of trucks, big trucks, everybody. So he, he, he comes from a place of experience in that regard. And there's so much I want to ask you about that. But uh, specifically, there was something that you were interested in uh, several years ago. First, when I first met you, I think it was 2020, I started talking to you about Vision Zero related things. And you had a system of, that you were wanting to install into your truck operator uh, cabs that had to do with cameras and distracted driving prevention. I thought was really interesting. And at the time, you were really gung-ho about trying to get, you were running for city council in 2020. I think, yeah, that's how I, that's how I first met you. Um, but you were wanting to get that in the city fleets and the, and the state fleets. And you even had the, the ODOT director at one point come out and check it. So can you share with folks how you see the distracted driving issue as someone who is in charge of a lot of people driving trucks around, um, and also something about that technology that you were wanting to use. So let me take that in two prongs. I'll tell you my experience, and then I'll tell you how it applies to bicycling and bicycling safety, and then our numbers, which are, are falling. So in 20, uh, 2009, we started seeing accidents starting to increase nationally, right? We had hit an all-time low in 2009. By 2014, my accident rate had already gone up 100%. By 2017, it had gone up 200% incidents, right? Hitting things, bollards, you name it, small incidents at my company. And I thought, something's going on. This was the telltale sign that I was on the front side of a catastrophic accident. All right, we track all that. We're really focused on safety. Key, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Can, can we can try to say crash instead of accident? Oh, yes, gosh darn it, crash. So with that said, we knew we had to go and dig deep and everybody said, what speed? We, we need to lower the speeds. But speed is always uh, something that's controlled by the driver. And we knew it was distracted, but there was no data on the market to say how much distracted driving was affecting our safety or incidents and accidents. So we added an artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning, on the dash, four cameras, driver, forward, left, and right. And the AI, if a driver would pick up a phone, it would say, driver distracted, so he had an immediate uh, understanding, send him a video. When I say, forgive me, I'm using a pronoun. It would send the driver a video and then lower their score. And then we paid him a bonus based on their score. As soon as we installed that on January 1st, 2019, our accents went almost to zero. It was an amazing understanding of understanding human behavior. And I bet you all of you are going to pick up your phone while you drive. If you're a Titan or if you're one of my sales cars, and I used to have one in my car. My son, my 16-year-old, had it in his car too, by the way. <laughs> but I'm telling you, our accidents went to almost zero, and that's the root cause of our issues. And I know that that's a, uh, a, blank, a blanket summary, but it was massive, and we haven't had any accidents since. So put the two and two together. Keith, how, how are you able to do that without your drivers revolting and getting mad at you and thinking, you know, all these other issues that oh. they might have? So, so no, no. <laughs> So you'll love this. This is a management leadership proposition. Know your core values. Let me tell you, if, if I might add, our three core values at Titan is quality, safety, and sustainability. Every decision must be framed with that. It's not profit, none of it, because that comes if you do everything right. Remember, the three are quality, safety, and sustainability. Safety. So we went out to our drivers. We said we're adding this. It's the first in the nation. We're an advanced carrier. We use technology to move our company forward. They all said, yeah, that's fine and good. That's good. That's fine. 90 days. A week before going live on January 1st, our driver quality manager reported back to our, our executive team, 50% of the drivers are going to quit. How did they take it? I'd say not well. 
But seven days, they challenged me with this in executive meeting. My executive all said, oh, we got to put this on pause. We got to figure this out. Hold on. Wait a second. The trend is, is our accident rate is up 300% in seven years. Our core value is safety. If I'm going to put saving one life on the scales here and put losing 40 drivers here on the scale here, this weighs more. Saving the life was more. I said, report to the drivers. We honor them. We appreciate them. We gave them 90 days of talking. Not negative. We had presentations in PowerPoint. On January 1st, on February 1st, on March 1st, just no, we didn't lose one single driver. It's change. But I want to tell you about being a mayor, you got to know what your North Star is. You got to know what your core value is because people are going to be coming at you all the time. But I know who I am and I know my values and I know my values aren't going to bend easily. So I, I just, I just, you know, I think you said about the drivers. And I thought that was a, an appropriate story to tell you because. You know, we're going to end unsheltered homelessness, and people are going to be coming at me. It can't be done. It can't be done. I've lived a life of a steady diet of no. People have been telling me no my whole life. So speaking of um, being told no, I think there's some people in the room who've been around some of these issues and some of these conversations, and they're hearing you, and they're thinking, why isn't Keith on the state freight advisory committee or the city freight advisory committee? Because unfortunately... Folks like you, from a freight perspective, have been very few and far between. I, I've never really met anybody who's got sort of your perspective in terms of collaboration and understanding, um, and certainly someone that would like come to buy Cappy Hour and be a good source of mine. Uh, we've actually seen the opposite. We've seen a lot of the freight advocates have done things that are like it seems opposed to bicycling safety. Uh, it seems like the freight advocates have put their lot in with with cars and drivers, which to me doesn't make sense because like you want to get those off the road for congestion, but. They've made this choice. Why do you think some of the freight advocates in Oregon and in Portland have this sort of like pro-car, anti-bike stance? Jonathan hit it on the head. The more we invest in biking and alternate transportation, the less congestion and the more efficient our system is. And I, don't, I wish I had an easy answer, but you said, first of all, why am I not on those advocacy? Don't tell me. I'm on enough of those yeah, sure. advisors. I, I don't want to be on any more. In fact, I was late here because I was presenting to the Washington State Transportation Commission, the, the small group that determines all funding for Washington, and they asked me to come in and talk about how are we going to decarbonize our transportation system in Washington. So I, I, you, know, you might not see me on the freight, but I'm, I'm active in state and federal government. So I hear what... Well, I was going to say, put, I'll put it a different way. How can advocates that care about bicycling and road safety bridge that divide a little better and work with freight advocates and freight, freight industry interests better so that we can make the streets safer? Well, you have me. You know, I go into the Oregon Trucking Association. They're always pushing back on anything new or change that involves changing infrastructure. Um, their president is Jana Jarvis. I meet with her once every couple months for breakfast because I find it's better for me to keep her close and explain to her what I'm doing because I go to these conferences and they'll say, well, I should say, I, I, I came out with a bill to remove all petroleum diesel from Oregon because it's just nasty stuff. And renewable diesel is lower cost and it's 80% 80, 80 less emissions. Makes like a no-brainer, right? So I go to these conferences and there'll be 400 members there and me. And they'll say, well, we got to fight this bill. Well, it's my bill. And I kind of raise my hand, and I stand up in front of 400 opposing agents, and I explain to them why it's a good bill, and they all get quiet. 
The problem, though, Jonathan, is they're so used to doing it their way, one way, and they don't want to do it a different way. I, didn't, I wish I had an answer, but I can tell you what I will do is I advocate, I advocate, and I advocate, and I never get angry because what well, Desmond Tutu said it the best. Don't, go, don't grow angry, improve your argument. So that's what I do. I just work harder than others, but I find the data and the research, and then I keep showing up. So I think that answered your question as far. Yeah. I, I wish I could change them, but I, 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 know, I, I know I'm leading them, and I keep telling them, if you don't do this, I'm making a bunch of money, and I'm going to eat your lunch. And I use those <laughs> words a lot. And they don't like that but I, because they want it because it's the bottom line. We're, you know, we're competitors, right? But I also don't want to compete at the imperil of our emissions, of, of our environment. So I tell them, here's what you can do, and you make, make a bunch oh. more money if you do that. Okay, I appreciate that. Speaking of making your argument stronger, uh, you're somebody who's traveled quite a bit. Like you said, uh, I want to talk about a few of your trips and the, the impact they've had on the way you think about transportation. You mentioned to me that you've been to Amsterdam, and I wonder if you can just share any takeaways with us about how you saw bicycling working in their mix, and maybe explain how did they all survive without trucks going right into the center of the city and delivering all their stuff? <laughs> who's been to Amsterdam recently? Right on. Disneyland, right? So my sandbox is homelessness and drug decriminalization and transportation because those are the things we have to address here. So I've spent um, two weeks in the last two years working with their officials, homelessness officials, public safety officials, government officials, because they really are doing well. But in the 80s, Amsterdam looked like Portland is today. They were the magnet of Europe. Heroin was wreaking havoc on their community. Tents were everywhere. Public safety was at a high level. Theft and all the other community livability issues were just like they are here. And I want to know, how did they turn that around? And so I've done op-eds and things like that. Now let's talk about transportation. If you drive into Amsterdam, they have a low emission zone. You're going to pay congestion pricing. They limit who comes in. And if you're going to come in, you're going to pay a higher rate it's carbon tax, whatever you want, because they really value pedestrians, they value transit, and they value bicyclists. And that's what we should be doing as well. We don't want to discriminate, but we want to value each one of them equally because they each have a benefit one way or the other, right? And that's really the difference. If you're talking about the Paris, we need to value our biking community, our pedestrian community much higher, and it reduces congestion and, and emissions and, and uh, it improves livability dramatically. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, another thing that you have experience seeing firsthand is high-speed rail in Paris and Italy. Uh, you're on a, is it a federal advisory committee for high-speed rail for the US, which you, you haven't mentioned to folks yet, but he's a member of the, what is the name of that committee? It's called the United States High-Speed Rail Coalition. So, so where is the conversation about high-speed rail in Oregon and how do we get our first line out the door. All right, if my campaign advisors were here, they would be going, no, don't talk about it, don't talk, because not anybody knows about high-speed rail. And they said, stay in your lane. The biggest issue today is unsheltered homelessness. But this is my passion. This is what we're going to deliver to our kids. So where are we at today? So I worked the federal government with the Biden administration, with the US DOT, and I work on the funding because it's a mega project funding. It is not small dollar. So let, let me tell you where we're at. So four weeks ago, Secretary LaHood, President Obama's transportation secretary, his cabinet minister, and I spoke to the Oregon uh, legislature. 
I presented to the Joint Committee on Transportation. Secretary LaHood is our executive committee chair. He's a friend of mine. Rep DeFazio, a friend of mine, who was the chairman of the Transportation Committee for the House. The three of us spoke to the Oregon State Legislature. I delivered the news that the Biden administration has approved our corridor ID for the Cascadia High Speed Rail from Eugene to Vancouver, BC, 250 miles per hour. One hour to port, one hour from Portland to Seattle. And they just notified me it's a, it's a nine to one match. So Senator Gorsuch and I are writing a bill in May asking for the state legislature to pony up 10 million, nothing. And the federal government, as soon as they agree to our statement of work, is gonna give us $90 million to begin the planning process. We're on our way. That just means it's still 15, 20 years away. <laughs> but that's why my, my advisors don't talk about it. But that's my <laughs> dream, right? And I want that to be your dream because that's how we get rid of cars. We don't get rid of them. <laughs> we make high-speed rail so attractive. I, you don't, and here's the thing. So I work with federal governments all over the world with high-speed rail. And I was just in Italy in November. Listen to what they achieved. Rome to Milan, same distance that our corridor is going to be. When they converted that corridor to high-speed rail, it now assumes an 80% market share for inner city trips from Rome to Milan. Imagine from Portland to Seattle. All those cars go away because nobody wants to drive anymore. Now they're biking down to the terminal, transit design. They're taking transit, subways, you name it. Nobody wants to drive at that point. That's called the transformation. We're the last developed nation in the world without high-speed rail. But we're going to change that in Oregon. And we are, and I am going to ride on that high-speed rail. And I want and invite every one of you to, these young people right here, are going to know nothing different in 20 years other than riding high-speed rail to Seattle for Mariners game and getting back home for their program at 10 o'clock. All right, appreciate that. Great. Okay, I want to give a chance for you all to talk. And if anybody has a question, I'll pass the mic around. Okay. Yeah, my name is Hami. Uh, thanks for being here, Keith. Uh, we know each other through the PSU PBOT transportation class. Um, always appreciate your eloquence and your level of equanimity. So I was really happy to see that you put your hat in the ring there. We need you. <sighs> Speaking of uh, the 26th and Powell problem, uh, where Sarah Planner was killed, uh, you know, I, I spoke at at that meeting, at the public meeting, uh, where senators were present and the ODOT director and all that. Um, and I talked about uh, how I feel that our streets are loveless. And that's, it goes beyond transportation, clearly. I think me and you and I would just chatted a little bit. You know, I commute from my home here to Hillsboro every day for work. Uh, I use my bike and Max, and I, it's sad. The, the level of problems that, that I see personally experience it and I see it folks on the streets and on the max. Really, my question, I guess, is how do you feel that we can bring love into this equation? And I'm not just bringing this up because it's Valentine's Day. It just happens to be Valentine's Day. Uh, <laughs> seizing the moment. I mean, it just, it's very, it's, it's very apropos. But, um, you know, it's not about being nice. It's about loving each other in a real way. So I can tell you, Keith, from a loving way, if I don't appreciate something that you did as a mayor or something that you did do that I loved. 
And you can feel that in a real way so that we're not just reacting all the time towards, towards each other. So, so how do you feel that we can, we can bring that to the fore if you become a leader? But you are a leader. If you become the leader of the city. Thank you. It's a great question. So, but let's get back to that. Just let's make it a Maslow issue, okay? Hierarchy of needs. Let's just make it a basic need. The first thing we need is shelter as a human being. So I want to go through the day without feeling sick and tired of feeling sick and tired because that's where I'm at right now. When I drive down the street and I see 20 tents, that's not love, Tommy. That's cruelty. So once we can address the basic need and I can drive down the street and see my city, your mayor, as working his tail off intensely to address those individuals that aren't getting love, that shouldn't be dying, that are getting their basic minimums cared for, then I can start recognizing there's different levels of love at that point, right? But we're at that base level, Hami, where if we're not caring for another, one another well, it's going to be really hard for us to struggle to think we can get to different levels of of caring, because it's caring we're talking about. It's compassion we're talking about. How do I spread the love? You know what? I think just delivering on what I say, making sure that we're focused on individuals, trying not to harm others, but being very, you know, it's like as mayor, there's going to be decisions you don't like that I, that I make, but at least you'll know my core values are sound, right? And we just, uh, I like it. I, I wish I could say something really wise and make us feel better, but I think... I just got to put on my boots and go to work, homie, and that's what we're going to do. Sorry. Sorry. So quick question. I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask. You've mentioned several times about giving tents out to people that are living on the street. That's something that Rene Gonzalez chose to do. He said he chose to stop giving tents out. Do you think he did the right, he made the right move? Was that a good decision? That was all politics, you guys. They're giving out, they're giving out 11,000 tents this year. The city county is, is delivering tents instead of shelter right now. It's just all politics. Does that make sense, Jonathan? Uh, I mean, so, 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 so do you think he did the right thing by stepping in and Rene Gonzalez did the right thing as a policy choice to prevent that from happening and to not allow those tents to be given out or, or what? It was a half measure. Who, not, what was a half measure? The county if, giving them out or, or Rene Gonzalez did? You have a city elected leader saying, I'm going to take away tents, but what else? I mean, they, we still need to provide care. You, you take away one other. We shouldn't have people camping on the street. Why would you give out tents, which means that you're supporting the behavior, you're enabling the behavior, when we should just be supplying basic shelter for that person? It was a half measure. It was all politics. But the reality, if you, if you peel that away, Jonathan, it showed we're failing our community. Why were we doing that in the first place? And we shouldn't be. And if I were Renee Gonzalez at that point, I'd be saying, I want shelter available for every single person because nobody should be on the streets. I know that's not an answer you're looking for, but would you agree or disagree? I would come out and say, I'm not going to hand out tents, but I am going to set up enough shelters to care for my neighbors within 12 months. That's my promise to you. All right, thanks. All right. Okay, we're gonna get two more questions. Taylor? I just wanna push back on that a little bit. You said you know that's not the answer he's looking for. I mean, I don't know what answer you're, anyone's looking for, but I, I would ask you to, you know, in the meantime, are you kind of looking for long-term solutions in the, in the 12 months and, and 
going to take, yeah, like, like he was asking about taking away tents, um, things like that. Would you be willing to kind of make mitigation measures in the short term that would be humane and, and helpful to people and, and doing what people are asking you okay. to do? So let's I don't know if that. No, no, it's fine. And, and I realize it's a tough question. Let's talk about what my purview is. I'm running to become the mayor of Portland, not the mayor of Multnomah County. Multnomah County is handing out the tents. I trust our elected officials to do with what they have, right? That's county. But as far as Portland, as far as me being mayor on January 1st, am I going to be handing out tents? The answer is no. Will I be intensely focused on gathering all of my experts and putting a crisis plan in to swarm and solve this issue so somebody on January 1st and 10th and 30th has a place to go? Yes. Is there a disconnect for timing? Yes, I get that. I will trust county to do what they're doing. I will trust our city operator to do what they're doing, existing. I will speak to county and chair Jessica Vega-Peterson. When I've got all the shelters set up, I will explain to her, and she's a friend. She's a very reasonable, good person. I will let her know, I've got 4,000 beds set up now. I need you to discontinue that. That's the process. It's a stepped process. I am not a draconian person on January 1st where I'm going to turn to anybody and say, stop doing what you're doing if it's mitigating somebody's misery, right? And that's what we need to do. So let's not, I don't want to look at the politics and draconian. It's not an either or. It's what are we going to do next? Let's do the hard work, but put the hard work in. But I'm not going to turn to Jessica and say, or Chair uh, Vega Peterson, stop doing that today until I've done the hard work and I've got that system up and running. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Chris Olson. I'm running for Portland City Council here in District 2, or actually there in District 2, sorry. <laughs> um, just a quick question. I was able to attend the Central City Concern office hours that they had for candidates a few weeks ago, and they basically, with the combination of data from Care Oregon, basically counted for almost about 12,000 people in the metro area that struggle with houselessness. So it's, I think 4,000, I mean, maybe in the city it, it, it's close to that, but we're talking maybe closer to 12,000 that struggle and all. And they have eight to 16 times higher rate of mental health and substance abuse issues. So how would your plan to shelter all these people in you know 12 months also include services for these people? Because they're not just going to be able to, most of them, just be able to sit in a shelter all day without uh, getting some sort of recovery or some sort of plan to get coverage, uh, get care. So Chris, who are our unsheltered? That's our workforce. Chris, 53% of all the people that are houseless are working the next day. It's, so you're right. There is a lot of mental illness. There is a lot of addiction, but that's our workforce as well. So, you know, I talked to you about the day shelters are going to link up. So we've got all sorts of services at the day shelters. So if you're unsheltered or houseless, you have a criminal record, you have a warrant, and you have fines and fees. So DA Schmidt and I and all of the judges and the public defenders, I just started the Multnomah County Homeless Court Program. So it's not about caring for somebody at night and just during the day. It's getting the barriers to housing out of the way. And so what happens when you join the day shelter, which the new one I have, the operator, I said, you have to have this program, homeless court program. This is only one answer. This is a big question. Let me give you one answer. It's get rid of the barriers. 
If you're in a recovery and life skill program at the shelter for four months, 300 class hours, financial literacy, you're a foster care kid. You've moved 16 times in 16 years, and you don't know how to fill out a check-in. You don't know how to have a checkbook. You may have NA or AA or whatever the case may be. Stay in the program. The DA comes to the shelter with me. The public defender comes to the shelter, and the judge comes to the shelter because these kids and people are so disheartened at the criminal system, they won't show up to court. I bring them to the court, and we graduate you, 60 people per cohort, and we almost always have Section 8 vouchers or housing at the end of that. That's a tailwind, and that's the first positive experience anybody has ever had with the criminal justice system. One answer. It's a bit, it took me two years to get that going. And it starts up right now. I've got five of our exec, the CCC uh, transition projects, Northwest Pilot, All Good and Do Good, or my steering committee. So that, that's, that's a specific item. That's how you do it, right? Appreciate that. All right, we're going we're gonna to end on that Thank note. You, Thanks for coming out, Keith. I appreciate it. Everybody give Keith a nice uh, round of applause for coming out. And I'll, I'll also say that this may not be the last time we get a chance to talk at Bike Happy Hour. We're going to be doing these every, we do these every Wednesday all year round. So hopefully you can come back in spring or summer when the sun is out. We're on the patio and we can have another Q&A and take more questions. Well, thank you. And I want to thank all of you. And I know this is a serious conversation. And I keep telling people, four years ago, it was more of a hopeful conversation. But today, this is an emergent conversation. So I just want to not apologize, but just say, I am a hopeful person. I'm a hardworking person. I see our better days ahead, but we got to get down and we got to do the work now. And I just say, let's get to work, everybody. So thank you all for this courtesy. That was Keith Wilson, who's running for mayor of Portland, speaking at Bike Happy Hour number 45. If you would like to come to Bike Happy Hour and see more stump speeches from, from local candidates, just stay tuned and follow us on socials. Every Wednesday we do Bike Happy Hour and I'm trying hard to get local candidates to come over and introduce themselves to us and take questions. So it's a great place to have access to people who are going to be future leaders in Portland. And if you can't make it out to Bike Happy Hour, I understand. And I will try my hardest to record the conversations we have there and share them with you either here on the podcast or in some form. So stay tuned. And like always, really appreciate all of your support. If you are not a paid subscriber of Bike Portland yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support and find out how you can be a part of what we're doing here and pay a little bit in to keep it thriving and surviving. I also want to thank Brock Didis of Sprocket Podcast fame for our wonderful new theme music. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll see you in the streets.